0: Church, I love that song. And here's what's interesting about this. As the weeks have gone on and on in our IBC 260, there have been weeks where we just kind of understood that the sermon might not necessarily go along with the theme of the day, the theme of the holiday, but God is just so much smarter than we give Him credit for. And uh, today what we're going to be looking at is Acts chapter 21 and Acts chapter 22. And in that... Paul gives his testimony. Paul gives his testimony of his conversion experience. Let me explain this to you, how this connects with the season of Thanksgiving that we are in. Because Paul experienced the grace and goodness of Jesus, that produced within his heart a thankfulness for that grace, which in turn loosened his jaw and his lips and his tongue so that he could never stop speaking of the salvation and the grace in which he received on that faithful road as he was approaching to persecute Christians. Church, let me, under, let me help you understand something I've been really coming to terms with this week and even this morning as we were singing all of those fantastic hymns, those songs of gratitude. Something I'm coming to terms with is that the more that we are grateful conscious of the grace that God has given us, church, in turn, we are so much more likely to share, to speak of, to talk of that grace in the heart and in the lives of others. As we're looking at Paul, here's what's going on. Paul had this unending sense of gratitude, which in turn caused him to be incredibly bold. And I was kind of thinking what it must be like to be a part of Paul's entourage. Paul always had friends with him. He always had a following, a group of people that were always hanging out with Paul, that were going from town to town with him. But could you imagine being one of Paul's friends? Because Paul's that friend in high school that your parents warned you about. Like, he really was. Like, think about it. Paul was that guy that was going to get you into trouble. If you don't believe me, ask that guy by the name of Silas. Like, Paul got Silas in prison. Like, you know that Silas's mom was like, do not hang out with that Paul kid. He's going to get you in trouble. And sure enough, Paul often got the people around him in trouble because of his heart and his zeal to make sure that the grace that was bestowed upon him would also be bestowed upon others. And so Paul wants to make his way to Jerusalem. Remember like this metropolis, this megaplex, if you will, for Jews. And he wants to go there and preach the gospel. He wants to go there and make much of Jesus, but also the church in Jerusalem was hurt financially. And because they were hurting financially the Christian church, Paul was taking money. He had written letters to other churches, some of which we've already preached on this year. He had written letters to churches asking for them to send some finances that he could in turn bring to the church of Jerusalem to help support those Christians there so they could remain in that town and continue to bring the gospel forward. So he wants to go. And in Acts 21, what you're going to see is all of these Warnings. All of these warnings from three different groups of people telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem because he would experience persecution. There was three different groups of people. One guy, one prophet, even grabbed a hold of Paul's belt, took Paul's belt off of Paul's waist, wrapped Paul's belt around his own wrist and says, just like this belt has shackled my hand, so will Paul be shackled in Jerusalem. Now, everybody else saw this as a sign. And a lot of people were saying... God has sent three messengers to tell you not to go to Jerusalem. And that's not how Paul took it. See, Paul was a little stubborn. Praise the Lord. And what Paul said is he said, listen, God's not telling me not to go to Jerusalem. Paul sent three different groups of people to mentally prepare me for what I was going to endure in Jerusalem. I also think that what God was doing was preparing Paul's entourage for what was going to happen in Jerusalem. Because I think that Paul was ready. Paul knew that he was willing to give his life for the sake of the gospel. But there were so many people around him that were kind of what we might call fringe Christians. We know these people. They're fans, not followers. And when things get tough, when things get hard, they're going to fall away. They're not going to stand boldly on the faith and they weren't going to stand boldly next to Paul. And I have a feeling the scripture doesn't say this, but all of the people that followed Paul around, I think that that number got less and less as he got towards Jerusalem. I think throughout Paul's life, his Really close friends that hung out with him, those ride or die friends, if you know what I mean. I think that those became fewer and fewer because they recognized that this whole ride or die concept, this concept that they would have to stand with Paul even when things got bad, they were coming to the realization that things were going to get bad. Things always got bad. See, it was Vance Habner, a Christian from many years ago, who said, and listen to this. A leader is somebody with a compass in his mind and a magnet in his heart. A compass is what you navigate by. You're able to tell what direction you're going in. The idea is that you you think through, you navigate through with your mind, with your thought process, your values, and where you think God is calling you. But then in your heart is a magnet that attracts people to your calling, your ministry, your vision. And Paul had both. He had a compass when he says, I'm going to Jerusalem because that's where God is calling me to go. But he also had this magnet because even when things got hard, even though the number might not have been large, there were still always a faithful few willing to follow Paul no matter what. In verse 14, it says, so when he would not be persuaded We just stopped, we ceased, and we said, the will of the Lord be done. Finally, Paul just says, guys, I'm going to go, and you don't have to go with me, but I am going to go and be faithful to do what God has called me to do. He had this unwavering desire to go, even though there were warnings. But once again, let me just go ahead and explain something. Just because you have been told that things are going to get hard and things are going to get rough and that life might be tough and that the mission that God has put before you might be difficult doesn't mean that it's the Lord telling you not to do it. I think often Christians think that the warning that things might be hard is really God saying don't do it at all. When did God ever tell you to do anything that was easy? Think about that. In the Christian life, when we follow after Jesus, when have we ever been told to do anything easy? God calls us to do the hard stuff. Church, athletes live by the principle, no pain, no gain. And I think for the same concept is true for Christians. No pain, no gain, meaning that everything that God has called us to do will cost us something. And I think the greater the reward, the greater the sacrifice. And just because life is going to get hard, just because fulfilling your calling is going to be tough, doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Church, we have been told so many different times in this church's history that the things that we wanted to do were going to be so difficult or almost impossible, but this church has been faithful to do those things, and in turn, we sit in a building that is paid for because we were willing to do the hard stuff. I could go and track back year after year after year of Emmanuel, and we could even go to the years before I was ever born. Where we had some faithful saints that were willing to do the hard things to make much of the gospel. Church, just because we're told it's going to be hard doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. Now, let's look at Acts chapter 21. Verse 26, he makes his way into Jerusalem. And after he gets into Jerusalem, he has an encounter with a guy by the name of James, the Apostle James, who was running the church at the time. And James gives him some advice. So let's look at verse 26. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purifies himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of persecution purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each of them when these 7 days were almost completed the Jews from Asia seeing him in the temple stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him crying out Men of Israel help this is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people of law and this place moreover he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place for they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple then all He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd for the mob of the people following crying out away with him. So you see that Paul was enduring some massive persecution. Paul, at the very end, they're screaming out, away with him. That language should sound familiar because those Jews also used the very same language when Jesus was placed up next to Barabbas. And they were asked, what should we do with this man named Jesus? And they were saying, away with him and crucify him. Same language as they're wanting to use with Paul. See, Paul took pleasure in knowing that he was receiving similar persecution as his Savior. He wrote that all throughout his epistles and all of his letters. See, every time that Paul handled persecution he loved it because it was another connection between him and his savior so here's what we're seeing in this moment he goes in to jerusalem and he meets with james and james tells jesus james the james the brother of jesus half brother tells paul hey listen Go ahead and be all things to all people in some concepts and go ahead and go into the temple. Go to where the Jews are and do a seven-day cleanse of purification. What that meant was it was actually something that the Nazarites started and the Jews as a whole started to adopt. If you were away from Jerusalem and with Gentiles and Greeks and Hebrews, anybody that wasn't a Jew, if you were outside of the Jewish people for any sort of amount of time, you were viewed as unclean. And so what they would do is they would take a seven days worth of purification, meaning they would go through some rituals and some processes in order to make themselves clean Clean. They believed that even if you carried the dust with you from outside Jerusalem, that that was almost like a sin, bringing in sin from the other countries into your camp. So they would make sure to be completely clean, that their clothes were completely clean, that their hair had no dust left in it. So for seven days, Paul and his entourage did the entire process that they were told to do. But then something ends up happening here. Something interesting ends up happening. And in the seven-day process, Paul is hanging out with a guy named Trophimus. Trophimus was not from Jerusalem, and he was not a Jew. And a rumor got started because guess what? No matter whenever you do anything for the Lord, there is going to be a rumor that starts. And when his rumor gets started, his rumor is, is that he took Trophimus, and he walked Trophimus into the temple. And I'm not talking into the outer courts. The outer courts was where anybody was allowed to be. The temple had, let's just for the sake of this conversation, three main points. You had the outer courts, the inner courts, and the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is only where the high priest could go on special days. And that's where they felt like the Spirit of God would dwell. But then you had the inner courts. And separating the outer courts and the inner courts was this little dividing wall. Maybe about three feet high or so. And this dividing wall had laws written on it. And the laws were very clear. It basically said that if you were not a Jew, keep out. And if you stepped over this wall, you could in turn be put to death if you were not a Jew. See, Paul in turn has this rumor started about him that he took Trophimus into the temple, and they stepped past that wall, disgracing what their traditions were. But then also these rumors got started that Paul was telling people that they should no longer fulfill or do any of the old Jewish customs, such as circumcision. He's, people were telling others that Paul was banning that and telling them they could not do that anymore, and Paul never did such a thing. All he was saying was is that you don't have to. If you want to, you can, but you don't have to anymore because the law is not the law anymore because Jesus came and fulfilled the law. We now live by Christ. But if you want to go ahead and do that, go ahead. He never banned it, but they couldn't get that through their minds. And so all of these rumors keep going on and on and on have you ever been there have you ever been there when you're trying to do the right thing but everybody assumes that you're trying to do something wrong goodness is that not a frustrating position to be in when you feel like you're trying to serve the Lord and you're trying to please the Lord and you're trying to do what's right but yet everybody just starts to make up these rumors and that's what's happening with Paul see one thing I tell a lot of people I work with right now is because you know I'm a young young pastor and I say this I say do me a favor and trust my motive, trust that my motive is pure, but also understand that my methods might need a little bit of work. My methods might be wrong, but my motive is pure. With Paul, his motive was always pure, but even in this situation, his methods weren't incorrect. He hadn't done anything wrong, but people were assuming that he was, had wrong actions and wrong motive, and neither one was true. Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote this. He said, to be known publicly is to be misunderstood. I think that's a powerful quote. To be known publicly is to be misunderstood. In verse 29, we see this verse. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together and seized Paul together. They dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. See, They were so upset because Paul was breaking tradition. There became a point where the Jews were not believing in Jesus because they wanted to believe in their traditions more than they wanted to follow after the Lord. They wanted for things to stay the same more than they wanted to be obedient. They didn't want to rock the boat. They just wanted to do things like they've always done them because people find so much comfort in doing things the same way all the time, every single day. Church, can I just go ahead and tell you that God never, ever said that the church would not change. He said God's word would not change. He said that he is timeless. He says that theology will be the same today, tomorrow, and forever, but... He never said that we would be able to do the very same things that we've always done to get results, to reach people for the kingdom. And if we serve traditions over Jesus, guess what? One day we will not stand as a church if we do not consistently and constantly strive to be obedient to the Lord rather than to be obedient to traditions and programs that we've always done It never works out that way. Every church that closes their doors had a moment where they had to choose between being obedient and holding on to tradition. And can I go ahead and tell you that I haven't met an obedient church that had to truly close their doors. But I've met plenty of churches that held to tradition that had to. Listen, tradition, the only tradition that we need to serve is the tradition of having the utmost desire to be obedient to the Lord. That's the thing that we cling to. And so Paul is just trying to be obedient, but the people are rejecting it. And then in verse 36, they get so mad that the mob is screaming after they had beaten him away with him. Now, what is so significant in this moment is that it's amazing that Paul didn't even die because they took this rule so significant that the Romans, who were in authority at the time, had the authority, the only authority, to enact capital punishment, meaning they were the only ones that had the ability to kill someone for their crime. But there was one clause. There was one clause to this rule. See, Because even the Romans respected the Jewish temple so much so, they gave the Jewish guards permission that if any non-Jew walked past the outer courts, Into the inner courts. They could be killed on the spot. That was the only time. In the Jewish government. Where the Jews were allowed to kill somebody. Right then and there. And that's what they were trying to do. If you ask me. They weren't trying to merely beat Paul. They were trying to murder Paul. But in turn. He has a Roman come in. A Roman guard. A centurion. A commander comes in. And he rescues Paul, why does he do that? Because the Romans had issues with mobs. Anytime there was a mob, if a mob broke out underneath the guard's watch, the guard and his whole family would be put to death. And so saying this, this commander wants to make sure that he has got everything put together. Look at Luke 12, just for a moment. Verse 51. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? This is Jesus. No, I tell you, but division. See, the Lord says that division is going to come. And when you follow me, you are going to have issues. But the thing that we're going to recognize is just because things get hard doesn't mean we're not supposed to speak up for our faith. Let's look at verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? See, there was this other rumor going around about Paul, that Paul was this Egyptian that had started this crazy uproar. And part of the reason why the Romans grabbed him is if they thought he was this Egyptian. This Egyptian needed to be seized and put to death immediately because he had led over 4,000 assassins into the wilderness. And saying that, obviously, now there's a bounty on Paul's head. See how he just keeps getting misrepresented and misrepresented and misrepresented over and over and over again? You know who that sounds a whole lot like? Sounds a whole lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Everything that Jesus came to do, people kept twisting and saying he came to do something else. When Jesus said things like, hey, I'm going to come in and I'm going to change the game. People are saying, oh, Jesus wants to destroy the Jewish temple. That's not what Jesus was trying to convey. But everybody wanted to twist the words against Jesus. The very same people that Jesus came to save. Verse 39, Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus. A citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. He goes, I'm not the Egyptian. I'm a Jew if there ever was a Jew. Verse 40. And when he had given him permission, Paul standing on the steps motioned with his hands to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. What does that prove? He proves that he is a Jew of Jews. He speaks the language in that word it says when there was a hush a quietness that language means that we're talking dead silent we're talking you could hear a pin drop you're talking people were in awe to hear paul all of a sudden address the crowd of people that were trying to kill him and what does he do he starts off with his credentials in acts 22 verse 1 brothers and fathers hear the defense That I now make before you. So he's about to give the gospel, but he's gonna do this creatively. He's gonna do this by giving what? He's going to give his testimony. But when he says the words, let me give you a defense. Hear the defense. The word that he's actually using is the word from the word we get the derivative apologetics, the defense of the faith. He's defending the faith by simply doing what? By sharing his story. Church, we have been redeemed From our sin and our shame and our pain. And because we have been redeemed, we have a story to tell. Last week I said this. I said that it is incredibly important that when you share the gospel, you know the word of God. I believe that to be true. But I also believe that there is power in your testimony. And you need to have the word of God mixed in with your own life story. Ready to go in your arsenal to be used for the glory of God whenever and however God provides the opportunity. So he says, let me make this defense before you, verse 2. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Sicilia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. He's saying there are people here that know that I've done this. From them, I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So he says in the... Hebrew language, speaking what the Jews love to hear. He says, listen, I am a Jew if there ever was a Jew. I am one of you. I served underneath the, the rabbi named Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel was a big deal. This was like the Yoda of rabbis. When Gamaliel talked, people listened. Oh, we got some Star Wars fans because some people were sleeping in there. Yoda? Ooh, force be with you. I saw that. I saw that. Somebody woke up on the back row. I saw who you were. Listen, church, here's what's crazy. This guy Gamaliel was something legitimate. And when he throws out his name, just like your ears perked up when I said the name Yoda, come on. Everybody else in the crowd, their ears perked up. They go, Paul worked under Gamaliel? Because Gamaliel was such a respected Jewish leader. This guy's father was a respected Jewish leader. This guy's grandfather was a respected Jewish leader. You might even remember him being noted in Acts. Later on, there was a council of religious leaders that came together. And Gamaliel was this one when they were trying to figure out what to do with the Christian faith. And he said something very profound. He said, listen, if this Christian movement isn't of God, it will never last. But if this Christian movement is of God, we will never be able to stop it. Gamaliel had wisdom. And the people catch on to this as Gamaliel later on in life writes something about Paul that I think is significant. He says, I had one problem with the man that you called Apostle Paul as I taught him. The one problem I had with the Apostle Paul was I could never keep enough books in front of the Apostle Paul. And this is a little bit of a side note, but I find it exciting. See, what he's saying about the Apostle Paul is he said, Paul was a hungry learner. He never, ever stopped learning. And every time I'd put books in front of them, he would read them so quickly and understand the material, I would constantly have to get more. He tired me out because he constantly was striving to learn. Christians, I don't think that it's a mistake that God used a man that had such a desire to learn, to be such a pillar in the Christian faith. What are we called to do? We are called to have a thirst for information that will bring us and others closer and closer to the Lord, so he brings up Gamaliel. He talks about how he has even persecuted Christians for the faith. Verse four: I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. As a high priest and the whole councils can bear me witness. He's saying, as far as obedience goes, I even persecuted followers of Christ. I didn't just have zeal for the law, but I was a spokesperson for the Sanhedrin. This is similar to someone standing up on this pulpit and going, I am as East Texas as it gets. I can make biscuits and gravy. I can make chicken and dumplings. I can shoot a deer, catch a fish, clean both of them. And I love Popeye's chicken. Like I'm just telling you, like these people understood that Paul was as As much like them as he could possibly be. He's generating this connection with them. And why is he doing that? Why is he doing his best to try to make a connection with him? Because he wants to turn around and give them the most important story in Paul's life. And that is the story of how Jesus came into his life and saved him. Verse 6 says, I was on my way and drew near to Damascus. About noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? There's something significant about this testimony. He gives his testimony in the book of Acts three times, and this one is just a little bit different because he talks about this bright light coming, blinding him, as we find out later in the text. But this bright light showed up at what time? Noon. See, for a light to show up in the brightest, hottest part of the day and overpower the sun, do you recognize the significance of the power of that light? Y'all, I have a whole lot of flashlights, and we can get a whole lot of spotlights out here, but here's the thing with all of you rednecks and all of your crazy expensive spotlights. They don't really make a whole lot of difference at noon, do they? Can you see that beam of light coming out of your spotlight when it is bright and the sun is shining at noon? I don't think so. Some rednecks are like, you just wait, I'll show you one after the service. I get you. But here's the truth. Nothing can overpower the sun except something that is coming straight from the glory of God. And what I believe that Paul saw, what that bright light was, was the holiness of Jesus. After he had been restored, if you will, spending time with the Father in heaven. He had come back to earth to see the apostle Paul restored no longer in his human form. but coming with all of his righteousness and his glory that is described as a bright light blinding the apostle Paul. Verse 7, I fell to the ground. A voice says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? He said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you. See, Paul has this incredible experience on the road this incredible experience. And he's doing everything he can on all of these verses to set up an opportunity for him to simply share what God has done in his life. Why did he go to Jerusalem and risk persecution to make much of Jesus by sharing what Jesus had done in his life? Why did he go through all of those crazy Jewish rituals of purification so that he'd have an opportunity to share what Jesus had done in his life? After he had been beaten and the same people that wanted to kill him, he looks up at the Roman guard and says, will you let me speak to them? Why does he do that? Because he wants to share what Jesus has done in his life. And then he explains and explains how he's just like them because he just wants them to accept the story of what Jesus has done in his life. And then he gives. (laughs) He gives this concept this story church here's what i want for us to understand today paul is doing everything he can to make an opportunity happen so that he can speak to others about the gospel see he didn't wait for an opportunity to be presented to him see most of the time we just pray god if you want me to talk to somebody about jesus would you just make that situation really apparent See, when I look at guys like Paul, what Paul said was, God, if you don't want me to tell somebody about Jesus, you better make that pretty apparent. I appreciate that. Hey, if you don't want me to go someplace, you better say it really crystal clear. If you don't want me to go and preach the gospel, if you don't want me to talk to somebody, you better make it very, very obvious, Lord, because I think that everybody I come in contact with would benefit from hearing about the story of how you came in my life and changed me and changed me from a murderer to a preacher. Church, do you recognize the difference in how we think? Church, I'm preaching to you just as much as I'm preaching to me. I think it's important that we recognize that Paul was so hungry to see the gospel go forward. And I think that that's exactly how Christ has called us to be. So the two walking points I want us to walk away with today is really simple. The first one is know your testimony well. And my challenge for you is over the next week. Hey, I'll even give you two weeks. Would you do everything you can to share your testimony with somebody who doesn't know it? Would you do everything you can to have an opportunity to share your story about how God changed your life for the gospel? Sometime this week, church, it's kind of funny. I was talking with some different people this week, and I'll tell you a story that somebody else told me pretty similar. See, for me personally, I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up around tons of Christians, but there's something I do know to be true. I do know that of all of the Christian adults that I was around, I really can't tell you any of their testimonies. See, they told me about their high school stories. They told me about their fun days when they were an athlete. They told me about their days when they were in crazy places like Vietnam. They told me stories about when they were a kid and they worked on farms, but they never thought it was important to share with me the story of how they came to faith in our Savior. They tell me stories about how God did some crazy cool things in their life, but not stories about how God actually saved them. Church, isn't it interesting that we have so many friends that we have so much information about? Is that weird to you? We have so much information about our friends. We can tell you what color car they drive. We can tell you what color car they want. We can tell you what they did in high school, where they went to college, what they majored in in college. We can give you all of this information, but do you know their testimony? Sunday school teachers, Some of you guys have served so faithfully for so many years, can I ask you a question? Do the people in your Sunday school class know the story of how you came to faith in Christ? And let me ask you a question, do you know theirs? Church, I think it's important that we start sharing our stories more so, and I'm gonna make this really easy for you. I think that if we can start sharing our story with other believers, And we could be interested in other people's stories of how they came to faith in Christ. That will loosen our tongue and loosen our lips to share with non-believers that very, very important story. Church, know your testimony, but know the testimony of the people around you. You will be amazed by the people that you thought were Christians that truly truly had a false sense of salvation because they truly didn't understand the gospel ask people how they came to faith in Christ church I'm going to let you go but here's my question if right now if you can't think of that moment that day when you came to faith in Christ if you don't have confidence that there was a time a specific time where Jesus saved you bringing you from death to life don't leave this building today without talking to a believer that can walk you through what true salvation is. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for today. God, I thank you for the opportunity we have to look at Paul and all that he went through just to provide himself with an opportunity to make much of you. God, I'm so grateful that Paul didn't feel like he needed to have permission from anyone to share the gospel because he recognized that it was a mandate given to him by you. And he was going to do everything he could to share the gospel with everybody. And he wasn't going to wait for opportunities. He was going to create opportunities. Lord, I pray that we would be the same. Lord, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. we got to stand as we sing.